This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from InnoVarsity Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. First of all, I want to apologize if this intro and outro is a little bit fuzzy for our listeners. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and so we couldn't get to the studio today, so I'm having to record this from my phone. So bless you for your patience. Ruth Everhart is the author of The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct from InterVarsity Press. You listened to the show Baraka episode? Yeah. Do you like Christian hip-hop? No, I can't say that I listened to so it. That, that's fair. So you didn't go and buy a show Baraka CD after that? I'm sorry to say I did not. <laughs> okay. I hope everybody who listens to this goes and buys my book, though. Yes. So it's really not fair, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, I, I hope that they do, too. I wanted to have Ruth on the podcast because I think the Me Too movement or facing the church's own failures as it relates to protecting the most vulnerable amongst us is a pressing issue of our day. It's not an easy conversation. It's not a fun conversation, but I think it's a necessary question. I think that anytime you talk about sexual abuse in the church, you're disrupting the peace and, and, and harmony that people would like to pretend exists um, and pointing to something that's going on underneath that. And that definitely disrupts people's mood and their sense of identity and could even disrupt their sense of mission if they were to take seriously how they need to respond to sexual abuse. It might push itself into a place of prominence that would be very disruptive to the ongoing work. I wanted to give Ruth the space to tell her story and the story of women like her without forcing her to publicly display her pain. Sometimes as it relates to issues of abuse and sexual misconduct, that we need to hear all the gory details. We need to hear how horrible it is from an individual before we would take that issue seriously. And what I didn't want to do was to, to make this podcast voyeuristic in that sense. I wanted to respect her as an image bearer and respect women who themselves have been assaulted. And I wanted to say, tell us what we need to know. Help us think about ways that we can be better as a church and help us find places of hope. And so I hope that during the course of our conversation, she began to see me as an ally and the podcast as a means of getting her message out. Whatever my inadequacies as a host, I think that the, the truth of this and the importance of this issue was conveyed. So you're saying that you would consider yourself as someone who's disrupting the church's often ambivalence about this issue? like, Or do you think that you're when you say that, yes, I would consider myself a disruptor, like what exactly would you say, this is a fundamental thing that I need to change about how the church deals with abuse and misconduct? Right. When you say ambivalence, I almost feel like that's giving the church almost too much credit. Oftentimes it's beyond ambivalence. It's almost more straight out denial and ignoring a problem that is difficult and so no one wants to look at it. I remember when the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church came out, and there was a sense in which there was a strong condemnation from the Protestant Church 
saying that this kind of invalidated, you know, the Catholic tradition, and this shows you that priestly celibacy is um, leads to all of these problems. And there was a, a huge like Protestant criticism. And one of the things that was surprising to me, it, maybe it's just because I, I hadn't had a history of of analyzing the issue um, personally, but when it came into when the when the, when the reckoning began to happen within the Protestant tradition, I was surprised, like you said, by how defensive and minimizing we were. Is there a reason why you think that we were able to see kind of the faults in a different tradition, but not think critically about what's going on in our own house? You mean seeing the speck in our brother's eye instead of the log in our own? Yes. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. I believe Jesus talked about that. I think it's always easier to see the dirt in somebody else's house than to acknowledge what's hiding in our own corners. Do you think they talk about, um, and everyone has their own hypothesis around the relationship between different polities. So some people say the problem is the hierarchy of churches allows for cover-ups. Some people say that the independence of churches allows for abuse to continue. Do you is there a model that you think is more helpful or that um is more destructive and I know that you're saying this is someone who's a Presbyterian um minister so you're more on the structured side but have you seen any any trends one way or the other as it relates to how churches are structured Well I do think that's a very interesting question because you're right when you mentioned earlier that the when the Catholic abuse scandal was the first one to break, there was this tendency to say, oh, see the celibacy of the priest and the hierarchy of the church, it makes it easy for them to hide. Then when the Southern Baptist stuff started to roll out, then it was, well, they're not really accountable to a larger denomination. And, you know, being a Presbyterian, we, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've taught to various small groups, you know, how our polity works. And I always draw a little model of the hierarchy looks like a triangle, you know, with all the power coming down from the top. And then the model for the, you know, the independent churches, which is typical, like the Southern Baptist, you know, you have like these discrete circles that are not formally connected to one another unless they choose to be. And then the Presbyterian model is this kind of hybrid of the two because we have this structure, but it's never, um, the, the positions of authority are never held by a single individual for life. You know, we only invest power in groups of people and we have the power come up from the bottom rather than come down from the top. And, you know, I can do a whole little in-service about that for my folks when they're joining the church or whatever and explain how our Presbyterian polity is what, you know, American democracy was modeled on. Um, so, you know, I do love our polity. It's really the main reason I'm Presbyterian, because our polity is just like American democracy, where it looks really good on paper. You know, like the idea of it is just a wonderful thing to behold. How it actually plays out is, you know, um, sometimes not so pristine. And I'm um, saying that after we've been in a particularly uh, contentious political season here for quite a, quite a while. So you, you hear what I'm saying. All that to say that polity matters. However, it can't be the solution to the problem of sexual abuse. 
that sexual abuse will exist in any church and any denomination, no matter what the polity is. And changing that is not going to be uh, a magic answer. So changing the polity isn't uh, a magic bullet. But to think about something as um, as big as dealing with sexual assault in the church feels like this this monster that is is very difficult for us to slay. Was there a moment um, when you decided that you were going to dedicate a significant portion of your life and your energy to battling this? And is this something that you felt called by God to take on? I did feel called by God. I don't think I would have chosen it. I mean, how I say it is that it chose me. Um, what happened was I grew up in a very uh, church-centered home, was a very uh, pious girl. I was Christian Reformed, which is um, the uh, Reformed Calvinist tradition. And I went to church twice on Sunday and catechism class and youth group and Sunday school. And, and in addition to that, went to uh, Christian schools all my life. And I was in college, in a Christian college, when this trauma occurred that put everything that I had learned into um, into crisis because um, I think that without realizing it, what I had absorbed was really a transactional kind of theology, you know, which is really common that we really often treat God like Santa Claus, you know, and we say, okay, if I'm good, then you're going to bless me. And I think that, you know, I was 20 years old and I'd absorbed that way of thinking I was going to be a good girl and then my life would be nice. And what happened is that um, I was living in a, in a house with some friends off campus and two men broke into our home and held us hostage all night and robbed us and then raped us at gunpoint. And that was an absolutely shattering event. I mean, I went on from there, you know, you, you, you move on and build a kind of a new life with this kind of new lens on the world. But after I'd gone into ministry and I'd been in ministry for quite a period of time, like two decades, I really felt that I needed to revisit that period in my life and say why, what I believed about what had happened to me, why it was such a shattering event. And so then I wrote this memoir called Ruined, which was published in 2016. And that's what led me to this because I wanted to widen my lens from a um, just my own personal story into other stories from other people. Now, I, I know that we're, we want to talk about your second book, but I would I, I know that you you came to understand that you were not ruined. And so can you say a little bit um, about how you came to see um, your own value by God and how that transactional theology was transformed? That's a good question. I, I came to see that the sense of shame that I was bearing, um, which really ruined is a synonym for shame in that book, was really largely a result of purity culture, of a sense of sexism that uh, my value as a female was less than I would have if I were male and that my value was very tied up in my purity and my virginity. And that, um, so I felt this disproportionate sense that when the, that change that shifted due to nothing that I had chosen, I felt ruined. 
But when I, I, I didn't, you know, I think that I wrestled with God about that. And I mean, the thing that, that was really crucial at that period of time is that, is that even though I was angry at the church for the belief system that it had given me and for the lack of support that I felt in general and the negative messages about my femaleness and my sexuality, but through all of that, I, I didn't have the sense that God disappeared. I mean, I had a very powerful sense that I was wrestling with God about these ideas. And so there was a sense in which a lot of it was almost an intellectual exercise and an emotional exercise of getting through to the other side. And um, so doing a deeper dive into scripture and into um, um, my being able to reclaim then my identity as. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned um, the wider church's complicity um in this in this issue related to the culture they created, I, you asked me at one point why I invited you onto the podcast, and there was this moment, and it was around the time when um, when Me Too first started trending, even on social media, and the people who eventually started commenting. Where people, I began to see people who I actually knew, and I had no idea any of this had occurred. And I had this thought that, like, it shattered me the moment that I thought it. And I realized my own complicity. And, and I'll tell you, I said, well, I don't think that I'm personally sexist. So I might not be complicit in what I'm reading about. And the moment I thought that idea, I thought about how I talked about systemic racism and how whenever I would try to get people to understand it, they would say, well, I'm not personally racist. And I said, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter if you're personally racist. If you're participating in a system that allows these things to be perpetuated, then you're part of the problem. And I realized that my defense mechanism as related to sexism and misogyny was the same argument that people use as related to race and gender, was related to race. And around that same time, um, or a little while later, I went to see this play about um, Frederick Douglass. And is it Susan B. Anthony? Is that the person who's alive at the time? I forget the other, the female activists who were, who, who were both in Rochester at the same time. And, and, and in the play, there is this discussion as it relates to racial justice and suffrage. And should you put one over the other? Should you do the suffrage, even the racism stuff first, and then do suffrage? Or should you do like both of them at the same time. And whether or not this was historically accurate, at the time for me, it made me aware of saying, it is not sufficient for me to say, this is my issue, I'm passionate about it, therefore I'm going to pursue this, and not necessarily deal with these other issues. I must be as passionate about the liberation and the safety of all people as I am concerned with like me being a black male. They would even talk about how, when I even talked about racism, I often thought about it through a male lens. I thought about the things that I couldn't do as a black man instead of thinking about the vulnerabilities that black women experienced. And so I'm glad that you talked about the fact that what happened to you was processed in a particular way because of the wider culture and the need for all of us to ask really important questions as to how the church, the way the church sometimes talks about um, the feminine experience that can be dehumanizing and traumatizing. 
That's all I am tracking with you and agreeing with you. And I'm glad you see these kind of common threads, these common um, realities between sexism and racism and how it's not just a matter of an individual experience, but yeah, it's systemic. And so, and and I'm not saying that like, and, and I don't want you to hear that me saying that I think that your experience and my experience are the same. What I, what I was trying to articulate is I am in so much as I am not a part of the solution and I'm ambivalent about it. I feel like I am indicted in the problem and that we have to think through what we can do as Christians to create a church, a safe place in the church. Now you talked about how the title of your book deals with the um, me to reckoning. So do you, I mean, do you, were you already, I mean, I guess you already were involved, but what was it like when the me too trend, I feel like it happened at a certain moment where it all hit the internet. Do you remember what that was like for someone who had, what was that like for you to experience that? Well, my book, um, my memoir, Ruined, came out in the late summer of 2016. And the Me Too movement started really trending in 2017, so a year later. And I was doing a lot of speaking about this subject. And in fact, I remember the weekend that the Harvey Weinstein story really broke and that hashtag spread like like a virus. And um, I was actually speaking at a conference of um, church people about how they could notice sexual abuse in their churches and how they could respond more effectively. And we were talking about shame and silence and all these things. And um, the Harvey Weinstein stories, you know, they got a lot of press that fall. And there was just a shift in the energy almost around it, I think, because of the the hashtag, which had been birthed a whole decade earlier by um, uh, an African-American woman named Tarana Burke, who's a civil rights activist. I don't know if you're aware of her at all. Yes, I've heard about the story. Yes. Yeah. But then um, I think partly because just of the state of the Internet, it didn't really take off until after that, um, that Weinstein story. And then that that's that hashtag just spread. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, to realize that there were people you knew who were, you know, raising their hand to say, yeah, hashtag me too. And you're like, really? You didn't know that. Um, so that's, that was a shift in consciousness. And I remember when it happened, I was so grateful to God for it. It felt like a Holy Spirit thing to me. Um, you know, there was a particular moment when I was in a worship service and preaching and, um, when people raised their hands and said, yeah, me too, or I love someone who's me too, there was a moment of saying, the church has to wake up to this now. It felt like, and maybe it was the circles that I was in, it felt like the world, it felt like the world changed. Mm-hmm. It felt like the, the eyes of a lot of people were opened. Um, I know, and this is, I, this is not the church that I attended at the time. I actually happened to be visiting. Um, and this actually is not a happy story. I happened to be visiting a church right around that time had occurred and the pastor was giving a sermon and he said, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about me too and Harvey Weinstein. And I thought this was a moment for him to, 
to minister to the people in the congregation who have been affected by it. What he actually said was, this shows you how corrupt things are in Hollywood. And I know that kind of thing isn't happening here in our congregation. And I remember thinking to myself, I know for a moment that there's someone in this congregation, given the size, who has been sexually assaulted. And you just like suck the air out of that person. Have you seen, like, what has been your experience of the church's response in the aftermath of this public reckoning? Have you seen signs of hope or are you, have you been mostly discouraged by the church's response? Well, when I look back in the, into the recent past, I feel discouraged. Um, recently, there have been a few signs of hope. And, and I think the discouragement that I felt is because the church is an institution and there is this sense where church professionals often act in ways that I think they intend to protect the institution and that becomes institutional protectionism, you know, and that becomes then a way of silencing victims and of ignoring them and denying their reality and minimizing the abuse that they suffered partly so they won't have to face charges or they won't have to have a financial payout or they won't have to have the name of the church, you know, dragged through the mud or however they might consider it instead of seeing this as something that needs the light of day shown upon it. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now, let's go back to the conversation. There's so many questions I I would like to ask, but I guess I want to put it this way. Given like the consistent failures of the church, and you're still consistently involved, I mean, you still pastor. Right. What kind of advice do you give to women who see the church's failure and say, I don't trust the institution anymore. I don't know if I can go. Like, what do you say to women who are skeptical of, and not just women, women and men who are skeptical of the church's ability to protect those who they care about and who they love? Oh, I completely understand that point of view. And I think I would do more listening than talking. And I would maybe ask them things like, is there another place that you could go, another church home, you know, another place, another community of faith that you would feel safe? I mean, to know that, you know, there's no one church that owns God. So it's possible to go to a different one. Or to make sure that, you know, to be the voice that's saying, let's let's create policies or change our policies or enact our policies so that other people are safe. I mean, if the person is in a position to kind of become an advocate, the thing is that a lot of people who've been victimized are not in a position to advocate, advocate for themselves or for others. And that's why it's so important that allies 
you know, such as yourself can speak up and do some of that work. What would you say for someone who's listening in who says, I want to be an advocate. I want to make sure that my church is a safe and healthy place for everyone. What are three or four things that you could say every church should put in place right now and every member of the church should make sure the church has these policies in place? What right. what kind of practical things would you might what might you suggest? Right. And in the last chapter of my new book, the one we're talking about, it's called A Way Forward. And I line out what denominations and congregations can do. And um, some of the important things would be to make sure that there are safe church policies in place and that people are trained on those policies and that the training is something that's repeated every two or three years, you know, it's not just kind of a one and done thing, but to say people can begin to have these conversations about what healthy boundaries are. So if if I'm looking for a church, then what should I look for as a sign? Because one of the things that you, that I think that it's been, once again, we talked about how this crosses all kinds of, of boundaries. And there was this idea that, you know, the problem is there are complementarian churches, and, and this is the reason why this occurs. But we've also seen churches that have been, you know, publicly and consistently and wildly egalitarian that have also had abuse and, and misconduct. And so what would you say someone should look for when they're looking for a church and they want to say, I want to make sure maybe on the from the outside looking in, what kind of things would you want to see in place before you even someone would consider a congregation? Well, I would say that I think um, the theology does matter. And I do think there are sometimes connecting threads between the patriarchal theology that says that men are in charge and women must submit does make the whole thing much more problematic. But but I, I understand that maybe some of your listeners are complementarian and that's where they feel at home. And so I, I can understand that that's not the issue that they want to hear discussed. No, wait, this is, this is the disruptors podcast. So you can, you can, <laughs> you can speak plainly. And we, we, this, this is, I mean, there are no sacred cows um, in the sense that, you know, if you feel like you want to speak plainly, I'm not putting you, I don't make you to feel uncomfortable saying things you don't want to say, but I tell my, I, there's a mixed economy. I teach at Wheaton college and there's a mixed economy at um, Wheaton college. Some, women and men are complementarian and some women and men are egalitarian. I am personally egalitarian. But what I try to say to them is there are healthier and 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 unhealthy versions of complementarianism. And and there are healthy and unhealthy I mean I guess I want to say that it's unhealthy versions of egalitarianism, but that would just be me conceding a point. Uh, <laughs> but what I would say is there are healthy and unhealthy versions of both. And there are things that there are certain accounts of Compliment, strong complementarianism that that are fundamentally dangerous to people. And I do say that those things are things that, in charity, we got to say, can we think this through and read these texts again and see if they're conveying the kinds of things that we think that they convey? Maybe that's just me trying to take the bullet for you in case you don't want to get people mad at you. They can be mad at me. Email me. I address it in a few paragraphs in my book. It's not a huge theme, but I do try to um, address it a little bit because um, I think that the patriarchal theology that I grew up with did have some really negative consequences in terms of my own sense of elevating what men said and thought more than what women said and thought, including myself. 
just very damaging. And um, and in this silent, this kind of inevitable silencing um, of a female point of view. And yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about there are healthy and unhealthy versions of of any theology, I suppose. So yeah, people need to, I guess, be aware that their theological position can have consequences that maybe they didn't want to admit to. I like to say that theology exists in the wild. And so it's one thing to have like our idealized version of things and to argue concepts. But at a certain point, we have to look at the lived experience of people. And when the lived experience of people, and I think when the lived experience of people are difficult, then they're difficult. And what we, the only reason I asked you this question was not to say, I was I didn't I didn't want to invite you to you know try to yell at one particular tradition. What I was trying to get at is that actually we've seen it everywhere. We've seen it in every form of polity and in every form of theology. And so what I was wondering is: is there any kind of policy? And, and obviously, theology matters. Is there a form of like church policy? And I, I know you said you get to that in the book, but maybe are there? kind of signals that someone could see when they're visiting a church that you would say, this is a warning signal if I see this kind of behavior or policies? Right. Well, I think that churches sometimes send out signals in just very small ways. I mean, like if you went in the women's bathroom, do they have a hotline number for victims of domestic violence? For instance, that's such a small thing. But if you see that, you go, oh, this church is ready to admit that women are sometimes preyed upon by men. And if a woman were to walk in this place and experience that, she could find a resource here. So if there's ways that a church can signal that we can talk about sexuality in honest ways, and we can talk about sexual violence, that's huge. Um, you know, does the, does the church ever have a series on sexuality? And can you can you listen to something there and see what they talked about and what they omitted? Does talking about sexuality just become, um, a, you know, a diatribe against homosexuality or um, abortion uh, instead of actually engaging topics that have a little more nuance and have, uh, you know, lived realities? You know, what what would the pastor say if, if a woman brought up domestic violence? That's the big indicator. Yeah. You deal personally with something that has impacted your life, and you spend a lot of time dealing with people who are hurting, and you write to people who are hurting. What has been the cost of this for you emotionally with engaging this issue over a long period of time? Well, it has been a long period of time because I started writing about this maybe in 2012, 2013, and yeah, it's it's kind of nice for you to ask about that because there has been a cost. I've had to pay attention to my own spiritual life and kind of constantly renew my sense of call to this work. You know, left to my own devices, I would have moved on to something a little more a little more cheery, you know. But I you know, I, I am powered by my sense of vocation, my vocational call. I was called to be a minister of Word and Sacrament. I'm called to be an author and to write about this particular topic. The topic has broken my heart so many times that it's made me oddly um, tough 
and, and, you know, vulnerable and tough at the same time. And so I have to just kind of hang on to that sometimes when I feel exhausted and, and I have to sometimes take a break from it too. You know, it's been an intense couple of uh, weeks and months in the middle of book launch. I, I'll get on the other side of that and uh, try to step away from it for a while, um, you know, to repair the wounds in my own spirit. Um, you know, cause it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Yes. One of the things that when I, I mean, forgive me for asking you this question again, when I'm trying to get people to understand systemic racism, part of the thing that I do is I give the global story, but then I give the personal story. But every time I talk about the personal things that have happened to me, it comes at a cost of like almost re-traumatizing myself in order to get enough empathy to get people to change. And so one of my fear, and, and one of the things that can happen is that can become like performative. Like I'm, I'm presenting my trauma to the world so they can understand the depths of the problem. But then I also realized that not everyone is, worthy is the wrong word. I don't owe everyone to show everyone my pain. And so I was both excited and hesitant to invite someone onto the podcast because I didn't want them to have to do performative trauma display in order to get people to care about the issue. And so I guess what I want to ask you is how do you personally balance like the fact that this is something that is objective, that you need to get people to talk about, but it, that involves you emotionally. How do you maintain that sense of balance as to discerning how to keep yourself safe in the midst of doing this work? Oh, that I love how you what you just said there. Uh, it's it's profound, and it shows me that you've kind of been in those trenches before, and you know the cost. A lot of people don't recognize that, and I'll come away from an event and feel like the pain was worth it. And other times I'll feel like it was, well, I, the phrase that comes to mind is pearls before swine, which is perhaps not, that's an ugly phrase, but it feels like, Oh yeah, they, there, there was just an, you know, a voyeuristic quality perhaps to someone in the audience and perhaps even one individual can taint um, how a thing feels. I was at an event one day, and I was talking about um, race, and someone said, can you tell us the worst thing that ever happened to you as related to, like, racism and injustice? And I said, no. <laughs> and that was the end of it because it was one of those rare moments. And I, And the funny thing about it is I started doing the calculus in my head as to what can I say that will move them, but that isn't too much. And then I said, no, I'm I'm just not going to do it. And I think that's probably one of the things that, that that's this constant struggle. And so hopefully, like I, I I have like my one goal on this podcast as I talk to you is to make you feel at the end of this interview that you were treated well and that you were honored. So I'm glad that at least we got a little bit of that. So what about your um if I'm allowed to ask you a couple of more questions, what about your career? Because one of the things that sometimes happen is that when you tell uncomfortable truths to power structures, people aren't always excited about it. So it has this, like, this truth that you've told impacted your career or your relationship with some of your colleagues? Oh, definitely. Um, I was serving a church when uh, the book came out, and they, they, they weren't 
they wished I could write about a different topic, put it that way. Um, some people, I think they might think one thing intellectually, but on some kind of a gut level, it's just, it all is so unseemly. And they, uh, you know, they just want you to stop talking. And so I'm really used to kind of the silencing of that. And um, I mean, I'm fortunate that I'm in a position where I can, uh, that I'm married and my, I can live off of my husband's uh, medical benefits. And, you know, otherwise the logistics of this just wouldn't work. If I was supporting myself or if I was younger, it would be, um, would be prohibitive for, for me to keep talking. That's one reason I do talk. That's one of the things that impels me uh, because I, I feel like I've been given a story, I've been given a voice, and I can use it for all the people who can't uh, because of all these reasons. So there's a sense when I hit pushback, it kind of can be oddly energizing because you go, well, that's just proof that this needs to keep going. And um, so have you have you heard have you heard positive feedback from women who've written to you or who you've met in conferences who have expressed some gratitude for what you do? Oh, all the time. I mean, after my memoir came out, you know, I just received just hundreds of of emails and people contacting me through my website or on Facebook or whatever. And um yeah, and that's really what what made me want to write this other book, especially after the Me Too movement began, is just to say, it's not like my story is just some one-off story. I mean, this is this is sadly common. And, and, and since my new book has come out, um, it's just the reviews on, well, just read the reviews on Amazon. They're, they're touching. Um, uh, and so that's just, that's very that's that's really helpful to an author. I have to say to feel like your words are making a difference. Is that what keeps you going? It is. It is. Where are we? I know you said that you um, there are times when you really discouraged. Do you feel like we are at peak awareness? I guess is there still the belief that we can keep this under wraps? Is there still a management culture in the church, or do you feel like? there's been a significant breakthrough where we're fully coming to grips with this. So I guess I'm asking, where is the church, not even in the question of solving the problem, where would you say that the church is on recognizing the scope of the problem? Yeah, I think the church is still denying it. And I suppose when we talk about the church, someone could say, well, what church? I mean, there's a lot of churches. Are you talking about a denomination? Are you talking about a specific congregation? But I mean, overall, I think we're still in the coming to grips process. Um, yeah, still, still wanting to, to pretend that it, you know, it's the Catholic problem. It's, it's, it's somebody out there, but it's not us. So what then would you say, I know, I want to say victory is no, there's this, there's this um, interview with Nina Simone and they asked her um, what freedom is. And she pauses and she says, freedom is no fear. And, and that's when you know you're really free. And so we often in this podcast ask people like, well, what does victory look like? But I want to say we know what victory looks like. Victory is no sexual assault. But what, so I, I feel like I don't want to ask you this question because I know the answer. But for you in your ministry, 
I mean, I would love it to say we we would we would exist in a, in a world where there's no sexual assault in the church. But what would when you are done and you hear the well done and good thy good and faithful servant um, from our Lord, what would you want to have seen happen as a result of your labors and not just your labors, but the labors of all of the people who are involved in this reform of the church? What would you say would be a glorious outcome? Oh, that's a, that's a great, um, great lens. Yeah. I think that um, we won't have the absence of sexual assault. So we all get to the kingdom of God. Right. And then it will be, uh, it'll be glorious. But until that day, I think that if every church had um, a policy that uh, protected vulnerable people and that was enacted, and when someone um, broke that policy and sought to harm someone, that they were held accountable and that there was no fear about the justice system and instead this kind of embracing that, that that's appropriate to go to outside justice systems and to prosecute offenders. So I see, I see prosecuting offenders and convicting them as a positive thing, you know, a a win, not a defeat. I'll be really, really encouraged if something happened and maybe this does, and I just don't like see it very often that the church didn't prematurely close the investigation and say that we've heard everything in the least the least damaging like interpretation that's put forward i would love it if a church said this happened this is horrible here's the things i mean i don't need people to like tell me what happened i'm talking about the posture towards the congregation these are the things that went on we're profoundly sorry and we're not protecting our reputation because i just feel like every time i read a story there's the initial rush to close and limit and there's always more information and and so what becomes is this slow trick like death by a thousand needle pricks makes it seem like the church is itself the victim but it's just this consistent and the victims are the victim but what I, what, what what is what is saddening to me is the, the consistent erosion of public trust when story after story after story has to be broken and the church is forced to kind of like they're holding on to some vestige of innocence and like each part of that has to be ripped out of their hands by yet another public trauma. And so I would love it if one, someone says, we don't know the full depths of this and we are profoundly sorry. This is what we know. And we're willing to listen to everyone else who's going to tell us. And we're not going to prematurely end this in order to, to kind of get beyond the crisis and get to the next stage of the church's life. Right. And we're going to center our response around the needs of the victim, not the needs of the perpetrator. And we're going to show justice and mercy to the victims and not show justice and mercy to the perpetrator. Because I think that's such a huge problem in churches because, you know, sexual abuse by definition is the abuse of power. So that means that people who are perpetrators are often people in power, whether they're just volunteer or they're on the staff or they're even the clergy. There's some way in which they had power over either the children or the um, women that they preyed upon. And um, what happens is victims are told, well, you know, you need to forgive that person. And then their hesitancy to do so makes them 
quote, you know, it's just sinners just as bad as the person who sinned against them and these kind of crazy, um, you know, uh, equalizing of all sin. And, uh, you know, that that's just God talk. I call it the weaponization of theology. And this is what I mean when I say this. You think about the story where um, Jesus is in the tempt is, is in the is being tempted by Satan, and Satan quotes these passages. And the problem isn't that the that the parts this, that that Satan quotes aren't you know God's word. It's the work that Satan was trying to make those passages do in context made them false testimonies about God's character. And so what happens is that these theological truths are deployed in such a way to support the abuse of power when that was not the intention. And so, for example, you may look at the story of David and say that God used David despite the fact that David sinned profoundly. But that sin had ramifications that that went down throughout David's family and led to the, divi- the dividing of the monarchy. And the, that passage isn't in the isn't in the Old Testament to justify sin in the present. That's not how it is meant to function. And so when you pick up a story like that and you weaponize it to allow something to to continue, then you're not doing what those passages were meant to do. And so what what I try to explain to my students is not the the idea of the question of whether or not there's grace in the Bible. That's true. The question of how that grace is deployed as it relates to the consequences of our actions is something that is, is a communal discernment that can't just be coded over with kind of um, Bible passages that, uh, that assage our guilt or assuage our guilt. So you don't want to hear me homilize. That was just um, <laughs> every now, every now and then the new Testament scholar in me slides out. So please forgive oh, me. Well, no, I, I don't know um, if you, if you've, had a chance to read my book yet but i have 10 chapters and each chapter tells a story of abuse in a current um faith con community but i also have a story from scripture and half of them are from the hebrew um scriptures and half of them are from uh the gospel and then i interweave those scripture stories with the current story one of the stories i work with pretty extensively is the david and bathsheba story and then a second chapter deals with Nathan coming on the scene. So I really, I really love that story and appreciate you bringing it up. And, you know, it, 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 it did have huge ramifications. I mean, to the monarchy, but to in the whole history of Israel, but, you know, Jesus was born from the Davidic line. I mean, this is, you know, it, 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 it gives context to how we read the stories of Jesus when we realize how saturated in misogyny, you know, our our scriptures are. Sobering stuff. I know. It's, it's um, trying, trying to think through how to use these passages in a way that gives life to um, congregations are complicated. I guess the, the question that I would leave you with is that if you had— one message that you could give to the church as relates to sexual abuse, Um, especially, maybe I'll put it this way. The question that, the thing that infuriated, and forgive me for using like this analogy over and over again, but the thing that infuriated um, Martin Luther King was like the white moderate who, who had a, who didn't understand the scope of the problem. And so his criticism was most strongly 
directed towards um, that place. Do you like what would you what would you say to kind of the moderate Christian who isn't like a complete denier um, and who's thinking you know this is a a culture war phenomenon and who isn't someone who's already on board but this vast group of people who are kind of troubled but who don't know what to do what would be the message you would give to that community within the church? Well, Jesus calls us to work for justice. So join arms with Jesus and work for justice for the victims of sexual abuse that are in your faith communities and make your communities a safe place so there won't be any more victims. One of the things this episode helped me realize was the importance of systems. The problem isn't just individual perpetrators, but the ways in which systems allow perpetrators to continue to abuse and assault. And I think some of the problems as it relates to sexual abuse is similar to some of the problems we deal with as it relates to things like institutional racism or structural racism. Is that we want to focus on individual perpetrators without attending to the systems that allow these things to stay in place. And what I think Ruth did a good job of is helping us to think through and reflect on the ways that systems themselves contribute to our abuse. Every pastor and every layperson in the church needs to be asking right now, first of all, what am I doing to keep people safe in my congregation? How am I checking those in power? And what kind of ministries am I providing for those who are in need of recovery that the church values their safety and their healing? I can give up now, I keep going, settle down, not ever knowing. Won't let my history bury me, because I ain't doing this just for me. I can't imagine a more important and pressing issue than the church's protection of women and children who are being exploited and abused. I hope that people will be inspired to act. I hope that people will think about practical ways that they can change the cultures of their individual churches and their wider organizations to make this a more safe place for people. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Esau Macaulay, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. We out.